I invite you to turn in the Word of God to 2 Samuel, to chapter 1, if you haven't already done so. Now we've left off for a couple of weeks. And three weeks ago, we left off right at David learning of the disastrous defeat of the army of Israel led by Saul, who was at that time the king. And King Saul, as well as his son Jonathan, David's best friend, are killed in this. And formerly, we focused on David's immediate response. I wonder if you recollect some of the details of that response. It stoked in him immediately a sense of deep mourning. And he demonstrated that in a very vivid way. It says that he tore his clothes, he was weeping, and he fasted until evening. So he is greatly distressed at this news. And then this evening, we turn to look at a song that he wrote. And it wouldn't have been something in all likelihood that he penned in, you know, 15 minutes following all of this. So instead of seeing his immediate response, now we're seeing the careful, the considered response of David. And it serves not only himself, but this is a song that he then had taught to the people of Judah. And so it contains lessons for them as well as helps to them in a time of lamentation that God would give to us. Now let's hear together the word of God beginning at verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you. Nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant you have been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Let's ask the Lord's blessing upon his preached word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you that of all the Bible, approximately 30% of it is presented in poetic structures, which expresses to us, among so many other things, the intensity of the human experience and that you who inspired all the word perfectly understand both the seasons of exaltation and joy and the seasons of sorrow. Our Lord God, we pray this evening that you would please help us to be attentive and to receive the lessons that you have for us, 
that you would increase our faith and our gratitude. For we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I think it goes without saying that virtually all poetry is best appreciated in its original language. That has to do with the nature of poetry, some of the artistic devices that don't necessarily carry over into another language. And that is true of Hebrew poetry, and that's true here as well. There are some details that, if we had greater time, it'd be a delight to walk through with you and show you. Just for instance, that this poem is filled with what is called assonance. That is, the putting together of words in a way that just sounds pleasing, particularly to people in the original language. We do this in English all the time with our poetry. For instance, the phrase, tell it not in Gath. Tell it not in Gath in Hebrew, and I'm sure I do no justice to Hebrew, but tagadu tagat, and you get this kind of rhythm. That happens all throughout the poetry, tagadu tagat. And you have these structures built in. When God set his word before his people, he didn't simply set it before them like a phone book of, I just, it occurs to me how those are no longer relevant, but... But like, say, a manual, you reach into your glove box and you pull out this manual, and it's just data. The Lord speaks to his people often in beautifully artistic ways, and he is a wonderfully artistic Lord. The poem also has many instances of homonyms, where you have one word that can have multiple meanings. I laid this out to our youth in the Sunday school this morning. You take, for instance, in English, you have the word dog. And that in one context might mean a frankfurter, in another context it means your pet. And even so in Hebrew, words can have double meanings, and when that's used in poetry, it can be extremely beautiful, and it can inspire imagination. And it reflects the honor that David is showing, the labor that he puts in this poem. In verse 1 you see the words, Your glory, O Israel, is slain. Your glory, O Israel, is slain. The word used there, the Hebrew word, is a homonym and has several different meanings based on the context. And the word glory here can be used to speak of a king, a royal person. And there you have Saul. Your glory, O Israel, is slain upon the high places. But it's the exact same phoneme, the same sound in Hebrew, for a gazelle. And so you get this beautiful picture of a wild, untamable beast being at the very pinnacle of the mountaintop. It's the last place where the battle, you know, the last stand, and there the beast is surrounded and finally taken down. It's a beautiful image, and then it's also the word used to speak of the glory of God that would fill the temple. And as the anointed one, Saul was very much intended to be the embodiment of the Lord's royal reign among his people. And so some of David's poetic genius is veiled, but the most important aspects, the ones that the Lord wanted to go to all people in all tribes and tongues, those do come through. Typically in poetry, what is going to come through clearest? Some of the emotional drive, of course, and then some of the lessons that you take away, the life experience that a poem is seeking to convey. Think about the emotional circumstance of this song that is being taught to the people of Judah. This is after a period of immense national tragedy. Hundreds have been killed, thousands have been injured. And this represents fathers, brothers, friends who are not going to be coming home or they're going to become, uh, going to come home in a broken state. And then you think of how it is a community calamity. 
Many of the leaders and the workers have died in this battle. This is a major blow for Israel. It was a major battle. It's a familial tragedy, of course. You think of wives who maybe were expecting at that time. This is a tremendous moment of mourning. It's not simply about David's feelings. But then David himself has lost his best friend, the best friend of his life, Jonathan. And then you think that it is a religious tragedy. Because the people very much understood Saul to have been anointed by a prophet, set apart. And what does it mean when their very first king is given up to death in this way? And so this song comes at a time of about the darkest grief that a people could be going through. The Holy Spirit knows that his church throughout the ages needs to have words given to us to help express the feelings that we experience in those times, because we do go through them. Thank God, not always at the same time, and the seasons of great national tragedy are relatively spaced out. That's his mercy. But here the Lord would teach us certain lessons. When David sent this out, it was very much with the intention that it would teach the people something of the heart of God. And David here, we get a window into God's heart, Remember, he's the man after God's own heart. We get something of how God feels towards his people and how he wants them to respond to times like this. So these are the things that we consider tonight here, and we'll do so under two main headings. I'll announce them as we come to them. Two main headings. First, though, I want you to think about this. It's something of a measure of the influence that David had at this time. Remember, he's not King David. He's not the king yet. But it's a measure of the influence that he had that he could have this sent throughout the land and that people would actually learn it. He had not yet been anointed, and yet he has been recognized as a great figure. And there were many people who anticipated that he was probably going to be chosen. If they didn't know that Saul had all, or, uh, Samuel had already anointed him, There was already from long before a prophecy made. Remember, you have the 12 original brothers from whom the tribes are descended. And as their father blesses them, over Judah, the blessing is given that from him would come a king. And so there's the knowledge. Remember, Saul's from Benjamin. He's not from Judah. Where is this king from Judah? And there's an anticipation. There's going to be someone. And then David, he slew Goliath. And there's this expectation about David. It's something of his gravitas even at this time that helps us understand why when Judah proclaims him king, it's not just political maneuvering. There's a lot of anticipation about David's rule. It's also a statement concerning his musical ability. The Sunday school this morning heard a little bit about just how complex some of the psalms are. He was regarded as a great musician even in his own day. The king could choose anyone. The king chose David to be a musician. And so there's so much that we can learn from someone like David in this. Our first main heading, what I'd like you to give your attention to, though, is to learn from what David doesn't say. What he doesn't address in this lament is arguably as significant as what he does address. This is very important for us to stand and to notice what he doesn't speak about. Now, it was no secret at that time that Saul had been hunting David for years and unjustly, as many people could easily recognize. 
And Saul's hand had been implicated in the unjust murder of a bunch of innocent priests. There are many things that could have been raised by David at this time. This could have been a moment for a takedown piece where David is going to air before all the Judahites and you know, create a clan for himself. Think about Saul. What a terrible leader. And he, look, he got all these people killed. And that's often what happens after a, a failed battle in a war. There are people just ready to write long articles and to go on TV and immediately lambast everybody involved and think at that moment how many people are in sorrow. It's striking that David says nothing about Saul's failures, and in fact, he wishes for this to not be addressed, especially outside of the covenant community. Verse 20, look with me. He mentions Gath and Ashkelon. These are the two major cities kind of like a New York and Washington, D.C. of the Philistines. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. In other words, David is able to see beyond his personal injuries to see how at that time a whole community, a whole nation, is in sorrow and experiencing shame and feeling jeopardized. At any moment they fear with their main force is decimated, they are now open to invasion. Now, I want to be very clear. This does not mean that there's never a time to address sin candidly. Of course there is, especially and really when the point is to prevent present and future sin. Sin has to be dealt with, but on the other hand, there's a time and a place to focus on the faults of people. There's a time and a place David discerns, to use the words of his son after him, that there is a season, a time to mourn. There's a time for everything. And in this time of great community calamity, he sets aside for a time dealing with those injuries brought by Saul, and he focuses on helping people to weep with those who weep. This is another important point to remember. Judah is a southern tribe, And the northern tribes, after this, are going to ally with somebody else against Judah. And they're going to have some fights. If there was ever a time when the people of Judah would see it as an opportunity to get one over on the tribe of Benjamin, to seize an opportunity to say everything wrong, now is that moment. But David instructs the people of Judah. He doesn't have authority yet elsewhere, but he tells the people of Judah lament for Saul and Jonathan. This is part of the heart of Christ being revealed. Christ didn't begin to exist when he was born. He is the eternal God come among us. He never delights in division among his people. Sometimes it's necessary, but he never delights in it. His prayer in John chapter 17, I pray, Father, that they would be one even as we are one. And when we hear that, say, another denomination is flagging, perhaps by their own fault in different ways. We should never delight or see it as a moment to speak about the the ill there. It may be necessary to address certain aspects, but especially when they are down and in pain, it should be our desire to weep and to mourn and to see people restored. It is perhaps because David takes this tack that the nation does reunify so quickly as it does in the whole big picture. God is working through David the kind of spirit that can bring together God's people after they have been so divided. So it's important for us to remember that. 
There are examples of this in our own national history as well. By the way, I was just reading the personal memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant. It's always helpful when somebody involved in things writes their own take on it. And after General Lee is defeated, he mentions in there that at the Appomattox Courthouse in the Civil War, so you have you know, obviously this tremendous conflict, immense amount of bloodshed, and there would be a relief, naturally, for the victorious side. But as General Lee is riding off on his horse from Appomattox Courthouse, some of the officers alongside Grant began to cheer. And Grant told them, now is not the time for that. He is no longer a combatant. He is now our brother restored. If that can be recognized in the world, how much more in the church And when we think of, say, people in the church who fall into sin or even for a time take up their voice against the church, if they should be restored, then this is the time for us to be welcoming and to have a spirit of reunity. It applies also in our small-scale interactions to let love cover a multitude of sins, as it says in 1 Peter 4, verse 8. And so these are some of the lessons in the first place from what David doesn't say. There's a lot there. But then, think about the lessons from what he does say. What would the people have gleaned from this, and what does God desire us to glean? This is our second and our final main heading. I think that there are, among many different lessons here, there are three at least that are particularly worth focusing on. The first, look with me at verse 24. It's highlighted in these words. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. Now, what is really being communicated here? Prior to Saul, the people had been over and over again in a cycle of being taken advantage of by the strength of their enemies around them. And understandably, they wanted a military leader to help drive away those people oppressing them. And God raises up for them Saul, and Saul with all of his faults, you know, you could criticize him naturally. But one of the consequences of God giving them Saul is relative stability and peace in their society. One of the consequences is that economy is able to function. People can work. Trade happens more effectively. And together with the spoils of war, but probably it has more to do with the economy here, you have people who go from relative poverty to relative riches. And here I believe that the Lord would drive us in each sphere of life, whether in the home, when we think about parents, spouses, when we think about the church, the leaders, and the things they provide of a spiritual sort, when we think about our community and our nation, the Lord teaches us to value the service and the sacrifices of those who defend and provide for us. He teaches us to value the service and the sacrifices of all who defend and provide for us. It is so easy. It is so easy to focus on the faults of leaders and providers. Again, I'm not saying that they are above criticism, but we cannot, we must not let that dull our sense of appreciation ultimately to God 
that we must so much of what we enjoy on a daily, a weekly basis, we have because God in his providence has given us imperfect but real leaders. Things are not as bad as they would be if we did not have people occupying those seats. Sometimes you think, oh, it would be better if Congress or maybe a particular church, the consistory, were just empty. No, it would not be. Anarchy is never to be preferred over any kind of structure and authority, and God gave his people an imperfect leader. How much more when we consider who he's given to us in Jesus Christ, who is a perfect provider and who has made the greatest of all sacrifices for us. And yet so easily we turn aside from gratitude, and the Lord teaches us to value these things then. Not just the value of our forgiveness and pardon, but even that he gives us People in the church who are willing to do things we can't do, that collectively we benefit so much. A second lesson that we find here from what David does say is found in verses 18 and 22. In fact, we'll come to 22 in a moment, but I'll just state it. And it's to honor and to imitate those who are exemplary for valor, courage, grit. And I don't just mean of the military type. Grit is needed in almost every sphere, perhaps every sphere of life at different times. The stick to itness. And we are to honor and to imitate that in our worldly affairs, but especially in our spiritual life. You look with me at verse 18, there's a detail that is obscured here. Verse 18, it says that David said that it should be taught. And it is talking about the, the song, of course. But the word it is not it. In the Hebrew language here. The translators have spared us so that it's not confusing. But the literal word in the Hebrew is the bow. That the bow should be taught. And they don't want us to think that David is saying go out and learn the bow. Although that may have also happened. But this song is probably titled or the tune is the bow. And most scholars believe then that because of the militaristic nature of what's involved in this song, it was probably used by the armies of Israel, something that they would sing from time to time, especially before a battle, to remember their fallen brothers and to stir up courage to be willing to go even to the death as they did. And it should have that effect for us as we consider others who lay down their very lives in service to the Lord and to their neighbors to have a desire, God, form that heart in me too. Courage, in this sense, is not being totally devoid of fear, like some robot, but it's to recognize that there is that which is fearful, but not to be daunted so much that you turn aside from your duty. Look at me at verse 22. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. I won't spell it out, but basically the gruesome scenes did not overwhelm Jonathan. How many people, we've heard of this. I think you've probably, most of you have heard of this. People in the midst of battle, are they think they're going to hold together. And I've never been in battle. Maybe I'd break apart too. They think they're going to hold together, and then when they actually see the gore, they fall to pieces. They shake. They can't do anything. Saul and Jonathan aren't simply fighting because they are these butchers. They're fighting because they believe God has called them to defend the people of the Lord. 
And that's true in a physical sense, in a national sense at times, and it's true in a spiritual sense that we cannot be overwhelmed with fear. God's people throughout history, in their hardest moments, in the moments when it costs the most to be a believer, have been raised up by the Holy Spirit to look death in the face and to not be overwhelmed, to keep swinging the sword, and in that case, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word. Verse 25, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. Here again, the picture is one of fighting to the very death, not giving up, being on the very pinnacle of the mountain, everyone surrounding you, and not giving up. And that is what the church is called to do. If the church in one area of the world should come down to 15 people, those 15 people gather and they worship. God has called his people to faithfulness, even unto the death with the knowledge of life beyond this life. The third lesson from what David does say is this. It's contained especially in verses 23 and 26. It is to cherish and to practice among ourselves the most loyal love. It's hard to find loyalty in the world at any time. Perhaps it's even harder to find it today because our relationships are formed in many times in the most vapid, superficial of ways. We spend very little time together in person, and it's hard to form tight bonds in other ways. Verse 23, look with me. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. This is remarkable. It says so much about the heart of David. It says so much about the things that God values. You may not be familiar with this, the dynamic going on here, the situation, children, understand. Jonathan's dad, Saul, did not like David and did not want his son Jonathan to be friends with him. Not because of anything David did wrong, but because Saul was jealous of David to the point of trying to kill him over and over again. And at one point, Saul Saul is trying to kill David and Jonathan stands up to defend him And Saul throws a spear at his own son. He's murderously angry at his own son. Imagine a parent throwing a spear at their own child. And even in the midst of that, Jonathan is the kind of person who is loyal. He's forgiving. He understands some. He has reserves. He's a grown man and he's going to roll with this and maintain his place as a general, as a leader in society. How hard that must have been. And yet in death, they were not divided. David didn't want Jonathan to take sides in that way and betray his father. And he rejoices in that degree of loyalty. We can rejoice in an even greater way, the unity of Christ unto death, his loyalty to his father, to do the things called of him, which were good. And then verse 26, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan, Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. It is a tragedy of the last 50 years in which we live that practically for the first time, scholars have had the gall to raise the possibility that this means anything inappropriate. And it's difficult for both sexes to form close relationships and to have real healthy intimacy with people of the same sex because immediately it falls under suspicion. 
Christians cannot bow to that. We cannot bow to that. Here we have presented before us a love that was intensely beautiful because it was a love of loyalty. The word here, there are different words for love in English and in Greek and in Hebrew. And the word love occurs hundreds and hundreds of times in the Old Testament. But the word that's used here occurs only four times. One of the other times, let me read to you the passage, Deuteronomy 7, verse 8. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has therefore brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I made a promise, I'm sticking to it. That's the kind of love we're talking about here. Nothing to do with lust. It's talking about commitment, loyalty. And David had experienced in multiple marriages, unfortunately, a lack of commitment on this level. But he felt from Jonathan, here is a person who has the the opportunity to become the king, and he wants to honor me. And the Lord would have us to value in this sense through this psalm, a sense we're really seeing a glimpse of Christ's love of loyalty, that we would be so loyal to him, knowing that he is loyal to us. By way of conclusion, there's one thing that David really could not yet teach them. And it was the depth of how these things would be fulfilled more greatly in Christ. You have the whole story. You have the New Testament and you have thousands of years of history on top of it. And we should not fail to appreciate these things in light of who Christ is, even as we've been doing. Hear together with me these words Proverbs 18.24, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And then John 15.15, I have called you my friends. I have called you my friends. I have called each of you who have believed upon me my friends. Jesus is a better than a Jonathan. And he does something that David couldn't possibly do. David ends, in a sense, at the core of this lament with a curse and it's really the tragedy of this song the way that it's least like the gospel look with me at one final verse verse 21 he speaks of the mountains where Saul and Jonathan were killed together with the armies you mountains of Gilboa let there be no dew or rain upon you nor fields of offerings for there the shield of the mighty was defiled His inability to recall the dead back to life so grieves him. And the fact of the desecration of the anointed of Israel so grieves him. It's as if David is calling upon God to make it so that that area of Israel would never again bear fruit. That the earth itself would bear witness to the tragedy, the calamity. And you think something like that happened after the fall too. The curse with its thorns and thistles. But it's not like that when we consider Christ's death. Because we have a king who has power over life. Because Christ is raised and holds the keys of death, he doesn't pronounce a curse, but he is himself the beginning of a new creation. Brothers and sisters, do not, in in those moments, because they're coming, if you have any, if the Lord grants you any life at all, we'll pass through these waters of death. We'll lose ones that we love, and yet they are not lost. 
David said it was beautiful that father and son were united even in death, but Christ can say it is more beautiful still. Those who have known me, father, son, mother, child, shall be united in resurrection life. And that's exactly what this is about. This is not a mere memorial of a death. This is a celebration, a spiritual communion in what has already begun for us, that the Lord of life has entered his people. May we cherish that. God help us. Let's ask his blessing. Our Lord God, we thank you for having come down to speak to us in words understandable. We thank you for having spoken to us by way of song and poetry, expressing better than we could the pain that we feel at times in this life, broken by sin. Heavenly Father, we don't point a finger at you for the fallen condition of the world. We point it at ourselves. We acknowledge that we, we are more like Saul than like David. We thank you for having given us Christ, our true son of David. And we pray, Father, that you would please help us to walk in light of the lessons learned here, to be a truly loyal people, not a bad-mouthing, character-assassinating, reputation-revenging people, but a people who wish, so far as can be done with righteousness, to cover the faults of others, to commemorate their fruits. Heavenly Father, we pray for a spirit of unity among your people. All of these things we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.